Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to Climate Consulting. Today is episode 90. We are edging ever closer to that magic hundred and it's a fantastic milestone to hit. I can't believe we are here. When I launched the series, I had no idea that I would be here recording episode 90 and everything and everyone that I've interviewed, everything that's gone on since then. It is really amazing to look back and that is partly what I want to do today because today I want to try something new, something a little different and something that I hope you're going to really enjoy many of these clues from guests on this show, whether they were solo consultants, partners in big firms, or consulting entrepreneurs. In the early days of Creating Gage, it was the advice and inspiration I took from my guests that really helped me when we were going through tough times. And having spoken with many listeners, I know that you really value these stories too. So today, I have taken a break from my usual interview format, taken a little bit of a different tack, and created a themed episode all about how to start your own consultancy. In today's episode, I bring together valuable insights from a range of previous podcast guests 
so that all of their insights are in one place for you if you are looking to launch your own consultancy or build your own consulting practice in a larger firm. In this episode, you'll hear from Don Morehouse of Morehouse, Suki Thompson of Oyster Catchers, Simon Dennis of Gate One, Hannah Farah of Carnell Farah, Stephen Newton of Elixir, and Ollie Pennell and Sharon Rice Oxley of Q5, all sharing their early stories of how they launched their businesses. Listening back to these conversations reminded me of just how valuable I found all of their advice as the team and I have built Create Engage. And I'm sure that you will find it hugely valuable too. Whether you are looking to strike out on your own or you are looking to build a practice in an established firm but want to use those same startup fundamental principles, I know this episode is going to give you a huge amount of advice that you can put to good use. So with all of the intro said and done, please enjoy today's entrepreneur-inspired episode of Climbing Consulting. One thing I think, especially as you're jo- if you're joining a firm, say you know, say it's reasonably established, providing people do things right, they they seem to self perpetuate. Something I think people get a, a lot less sight of is the early days of firms. You know, unless there are people who are working like your colleagues when you first started would have. Be really interested to understand the steps you actually took to to set up Morehouse uh, and a- almost the early year or years how you went from. Don Morehouse to a team of I don't know let's say five or ten. No, sure. Um, so, so the, the initial step would have been opening the drawer out, looking at this life plan, and again, sort of thinking, oh, you know, I've really got to do this, or or or, or stop talking about it. You know, and you'd be in a place in your life where you're going to dinner party, saying, you know, one day I'm going to set up my own company. And I remember, you know, having the thought of if I don't do this in the next six months, then I have got to stop you know, boring friends with the, the, the sort of talk of it. So triggered by the conscious uh, being uh, being pricked by reading it again, I took a week off of work from the large company I've discussed and I literally just locked myself in my small office at the time. It was right up on the roof of my house and I penned a business plan. And that's a really interesting exercise in itself. And, I, you know, I've talked about this uh, when I run a, I run an annual event now for sort of entrepreneurs in a similar place. And I, I often find myself describing this story, but in the fashion that we've just talked about, in a very structured way, it went through the different aspects of it. And I built out a plan of what this business would look like over five years. I also set myself very deliberately the goal of getting it to a point of value. So I had an option on that value within five years. And we can talk about that a bit more in a, in a moment as to why. But um, So there was this very... Um, structured artifact that kind of came came to bear and and you go through some interesting sort of emotional places doing that and you know i'll tell you where i went through because i'm sure your listeners may be in a similar place which i at points where you have crashing doubt moments of self-confidence doubt and um, i found myself describing a firm in whatever it was five years time that say had 25 30 people working into it i was like who am i kidding i don't even have my first client i wouldn't even know the first in person to bring on and yeah, I'm painting this rich picture of this end point. And, you know, you almost feel like you're, I, I don't know, you're almost like a little schoolboy that's kind of, you know, just naively painting something out. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have any kind of credibility to it. I cannot tell you, though, how magically potent that artifact was and became. 
you know, we can sort of, again, we can... We can well, please, yeah, why was uh, it? So? Well, for a number of reasons. Well, first and foremost, because it absolutely crystallised my intent. And, you know, literally, come the Friday of that week, you know, and on the Friday afternoon, I had then, you know, set a bank account up and commissioned an accountant and done all that sort of, you know, boring, le- uh, you know, sort of legal incorporation aspect. It gave me the confidence over that weekend to step back in on Monday and say, you know, with absolute 100% conviction, Thanks for a great few years at Deloitte, but you know my my journey is, is heading off elsewhere. So first and foremost, it did that, and it, it, I guess it cemented in me that you know I, I have I have a baseline now. I can sort of at least march on this. Of course, you know you you meet the real world. There's a huge amount of sort of variables then that you're up against. But I tell you the other real powerful or many powerful bits about this, which is well, first and foremost, when you do get the opportunity to grow, you know, and I, I very fortunately had a first engagement that enabled me to bring in a small team and we put a team of um four of us initially it grew quite quickly into um transport for london actually was was a first key client and at this point you can imagine the conversation where i'm you know uh speaking to people to say you know would you come and join me like you know who are you you know you're a one-man band and you know what, what am i joining and actually being able to say, well, read my my business plan and see the kind of considered thought I've given to the kind of firm and I want to build, the kind of values it carries, the kind of place I want to be in three, four, five years' time, and the kind of work we're going to do, I, you know, was a massively powerful um, recruitment asset for nothing else because it, I think you know genuinely helped, particularly in the early stages, me assuage people that you know I wasn't just making it up as I was going along. So you so, would give this to prospective yeah, hires. You'd abs- say, "Check out my business plan." Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, again, uh, this is a little bit idiosyncratic of me, I think. But the, the, a key principle for me was everybody should see that plan in my firm. So when you know the firm grew and we evolved into annual planning cycles, where the whole firm would be involved in updating and refining the plan, you know, it was really important to me that everybody saw that right down to the you know the, the nitty gritty of the PNL and you know the financial um, KPIs, etc. And I, I do want to come on to that. And I, I think there's going to be, to your point around who has the most stories wins, I think there's going to be a great story around TFL and how you got your four people. I wanted just to hold on the planning element for a moment, uh, mainly for my listeners again, if if they are like you sitting there as a manager in any consulting firm, they take this week off. What are What are the key things that they should capture in the plan? What were the sections that really lived on past that sort of first week for you versus the ones that fell away conversely uh, in some ways that structure largely survived um what i did at, like, yeah what, no no what, sure what you're going to test my memory because <laughs> what, what i did at the time actually is i, I you know i was reading pretty uh, avariciously around uh, you know business planning and i think um you know there's loads of books out there there's one actually i do remember that i, I thought was really useful and, and i probably forget the author's name now but you can check this and put it maybe in the notes but richard yeah. richard stutely kind of comes to mind but the book was called something like the the definitive business plan. Yeah, so if that's still in print, that was a, that, I remember that was a very well articulated reference point. It's, it's, it's um, fairly sort of grounded stuff, this, isn't it? So absolutely assess the market. What, what did I see the market doing in terms of the sort of growth for the area that I was positioning my firm into? How was that market fragmented? You know, what were the factors that were driving that growth? Looking at the competition, you know, there's also, there's always a bit of analysis as to just how competitive the, the landscape is and genuinely without sort of whimsical thinking, how do you think you will fare when you land in that supply side? So, you know, that's the kind of uh, environmental analysis, I guess, up front, um, you know, a whole load of, well, what is the proposition that I seek to land? How does that 
decompose into sort of subservice areas. Um, a whole load of planning around the organizational build. I, and a great book, actually, I would highly recommend. I don't think it's ever really been surpassed is um, David Meister's uh, Managing the Professional Service Firm, particularly around how successful professional service firms um, develop leverage. And again, a hugely misunderstood or not uh, or not known <laughs> concept. But you've got to understand the sort of organizational and economic leverage you're building in a firm. And if you get an understanding of that from day one, which I did, you know, I was doing this when I hadn't even started, I worked that leverage concept through into how I saw the organization growing, both in terms of human beings, but in terms of, you know, financial metrics. So there's a whole load of analysis on that front. The other huge advantage you have is you can start to paint the, you know, the kind of company you want, you know, what sort of values it carries, you know, what's the end vision, you know, what are the key objectives you're seeking to achieve, you hold yourself about it, true to. And then, of course, there's a whole load of financial analysis that you've ultimately got some Excel spreadsheet on the side crunching away. Uh, you know, and I guess, you know, the, the, the sort of typical final section of such a piece is, you know, is, is the risks and, and, and how you see yourself mitigating those going forward. And what sort of, I think that bit's quite interesting, actually, that the risks Maybe if we fast forward it to now, like you mentioned, you run retreats for entrepreneurs who were like you back then. You have a number of guides on the topic. What are the sort of risks that people need to to be really mindful of if they're setting out on this sort of journey? I mean, it's true. Big question in that, you know, it's it's entrepreneurial. Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurial by definition is, uh, you know, you're taking huge risk. And I, I guess if you if I framed it, though, and put, uh, put it into context, so I would have been... 34, 35, 35 at the time, probably t- two of my three children had come along by then, you know, got a mortgage to pay, mouse to feed, you know, fundamentally, I mean, um, security of future income stream here is where you are. And, I, you know, I guess where I was, I didn't have huge savings. I think what I had uh, done in my mind was position those savings to say, well, that gives me a runway and it gives me a runway of X months. If after those X months, my entrepreneurial venture just hasn't come to anything, what does that mean? Well, it probably means I need to kind of put my hands up in the air, say, this probably wasn't for me. And, you know, I head back into the world of employment. But this is a really key point, Nick, I think. And, you know, what, what's really lost at that point? I, and I guess this is where I landed, which is nothing is lost at that point. In fact, as an employer now down the line, I, I would employ somebody every day who had shown the spark to go off and do that, even if it hadn't actually worked out. I think it talks volumes to the kind of self-drive and proactivity of, of, of you know, that individual. So for me, I kind of thought if it doesn't work out, ultimately, you know, I'll burn through my savings and I'll go back into the world of employment. But, you know, I was pretty confident I'd find another job. I might take a few steps backwards. But, you know, in the grand schema, that for me was my frame on, on, on initial risk. How did Oyster Catchers start? So my previous company, Haystack, was um, what you would call an, an intermediary. So sits between clients and agencies and helps clients find agencies. So I was nicknamed Suki Matchmaker for a long time. <laughs> and it was, it was that lovely kind of role, which was, again, sort of 15 years ago, was quite unusual in the marketplace. There were two or three big intermediary companies that were predominantly run actually by men, middle-aged men that helped clients find agencies. And and when I set up Haystack, I kind of looked at it from a much more consultative approach. Mm. So working with marketing teams to use finding a new agency as part of a transformation. In between Haystack uh, and Oyster Catchers, 
I just was a consultant for a year on my own. So I was at home most of the time. I had a couple of people working for me. My children were quite young. I wanted to make sure that they were okay after my divorce. Mm. And it was, you know, it was fine. It was, it was interesting. I had some nice clients. But I didn't really like working on my own. And I wanted to start another business. And I'd looked around at doing other things. I, as you said, I'd had a gin company before. I'd always wanted to run a sailing school. So I did that debate of, do I go back to Cornwall and run a sailing school? And actually, for me, I love... I love marketing. I love their industry. I think it's extraordinary. And, you know, at that time, 10 years ago, um, was absolutely the time of the dot-com bubble and uh, and everything was growing. It was very absolutely becoming around digital. And so I thought, well, I'll start a business again. And I, I actually, I was at a dinner party. And at this dinner party was Peter. And I was sitting next to him and chatting. And, and I had previously, uh, I'd been part of the marketing society. I've been on the board of the marketing society and um, I'd run one part of the events piece and I'd handed it over to Peter as I went onto the board. So I knew him from there. He was an amazing new business director at WPP. And so when I'd been running pitches for people like British Airways and Sainsbury's, he had been the new business director on the other side. Mm -hmm. And we knew lots of people and we'd been in the industry a long time. And I'd talked to him when I was at Haystack actually about whether he ever wanted to come and work with us, but it never came to anything. So at this dinner, party we got chatting and and he was going to do something in this space and I went well come and work with me and it went from there so you know he's massively enthusiastic about everything they used to call him top banana at WPP and you know I was quite clear and I just said look I absolutely know what the business should look like I think we should be engaging in digital space I think it should be a business that's more around helping marketing departments function and be amazing and how we work with their clients and agencies. Um, So I sort of know what to do. And I think we should build a consultancy, not just an intermediary. But I think you'll be brilliant at having a different perspective on how we run pitches and you can learn and help grow it that way. So I, I sort of knew where the business might go and how to do it. And Peter bought his, you know, loads and loads of years of experience of the whole industry, you know, and creating a, a kind of even more encompassing pitch process. And I just think we just found out that we just liked each other. You know, we got on really well. We are really, really different. I mean, he is, mm. he is uh, slightly eccentric. There's a lovely expression that one of our clients, Kat, at TK Maxx talks about is, you know, get the fish out on the table. Okay. And getting the fish out on the table means say all the stuff in the room, like the elephant in the room, say mm-hmm. all the stuff that other people are thinking and don't say. Mm. Peter always says the stuff that other people don't say. He always brings the fish. He always brings the fish. And, you know, he loves people. So his, when he thinks, his idea of success mm. is every client hugs him and says, you're amazing. You know, he has, he has ability to hug people, to kiss people far too much for my liking. Um, and men as and men and women. And, you know, that's slightly off-putting, but that's what Peter's like. So, you know, when we when we first got together to working together and we were chatting and I said, you know, we were looking at the clients we might work with. And I said, well, you know, I know Nigel Gilbert at um, at that time, the CMO of Lloyd's Banking Group. And he went, oh, I know Nigel. I said, oh, that's good. So we phoned Nigel and went to see him and Nigel gave us one of our first projects. So Peter drives a massive motorbike. And I said, oh, Nigel's to say we've got our first project. It's amazing. He goes, excellent. I'm going to get on my bike and go and see him. So he literally jumps on his motorbike. He goes across town. He walks into Lloyd's Bank. He walks into Nigel's office, gives him a massive hug and kiss, literally a hug and kiss, and then walks back to the office and goes, darling, I love you. 
and comes back. I'm going, Peter, that's just outrageous. How are you doing that? And how do you get away with it? But you know what? Ten years later, that's still what he does with all clients. And even the clients at the beginning kind of go, well, I'm not sure about Peter. He's quite full on. By the end, love him because he passionately loves their business and loves people and working with them. And he's amazingly good in it. So it's been great. And I'm really interested in that, that start point. Finding a business partner can be, can be a challenge. Um, many businesses fall apart because partnerships don't work. How did you decide and how did Peter decide that you, know, you were a good partnership? Do you remember any of the conversations you had, any of the thought processes you went through to, to decide that? Because I think for others who are looking to start a business, I think that's a really interesting point, especially given what, what you say about how different you are. Do you know what? I think we're really lucky. I don't think we did any of the properly, oh my God, what happens if it doesn't work, if we don't get on? I just think we just thought that we kind of like each other. It might work, it might not. And actually, you know, I then brought in Angus Crowther as my second managing, the sort of the third managing partner. A little bit later, we had Richard Robinson and the four of us were the managing partners when we sold the business. So I think we were really, really lucky. We had then a couple of other managing partners we tried to bring in along the journey and they didn't work out. So I think the thing is, when it doesn't work, you know. I think we've always been too slow to get rid of them. Mm. Actually, in every single instance, we've been slow to, too slow to get rid of them. Why? Because they don't fit. And it's not their fault. It's not they're not good. It's just don't culturally fit. And I think as you grow bigger, there's, there's a tipping point, isn't there? There's, as you grow, the employing the next senior person is disproportionately important. And therefore, if it doesn't work, it makes a massive impact on the whole business. Mm. As you then get to a critical size, sort of doesn't matter quite so much. I mean, it does obviously at that very senior managing partner level, but you can bring people in and they don't all necessarily fit mm. and you can accommodate that. But it, it, it's much more difficult, I think, as you build a business. What stopped you... Guess you, you said you, you got rid of them too late. What stopped you getting rid of them at, with hindsight? What was the right time? Because they were always nice people. I mean, they were nice. They, were, they weren't trying to be hopeless or <laughs> trying to not work with us well. Um, and sometimes it was us. You know, sometimes they came in at a time when we were trying to grow and do something different. You know, we, we're kind of the sort of slightly classic entrepreneur where we do stuff a bit too much by gut and instinct rather than having lots of processes. We've never been massively process-driven, uh, and therefore we've been quite agile and customer-focused. You know, that's quite frustrating, I think, for other people to come and join. But, you, you know, I've seen that in lots of businesses, uh, much bigger businesses than we've had. It's a kind of slightly entrepreneurial trait, isn't it? You just go and get stuff done and then worry about it later rather than putting it as much systems and, and processes as you should probably. And was, was it that gut feeling that led to you actually creating the consultancy business? Because like you said, you, you ran the agency matchmaking business. And it, it seems to me that actually that marketing consultative approach was quite new when you were setting it up. Is it just you felt it was right? Or how did you decide that that was the right business to, to go after? There's a couple of things. One has been, I actually wanted to passionately bring in training. Training and capability was the thing that I really wanted to bring alongside pitch and, and partnership stuff. So 
I think training is really important to all businesses. I think it's really important to people and individuals. And I think as an industry, we have often shied away from training our people brilliantly. So, you know, if you are a lawyer or a financial person, you sit in a, a kind of formulaic process mm. that just because you've come out of university or whatever, you carry on learning, you carry on doing professional study and sitting exams. We don't do that in marketing. I mean, you could mm. leave school and never do marketing anything at any time and still be really successful. And I'm not sure that that's always a right, a good thing. I don't think it's always a good thing for our profession. So I really was really interested in training. So the, there was that. And then as you look at clients and agencies and how they can perform together, and then you look at how do you optimize that relationship and you put in training, there's another piece that says, but how does the model work? So how do we make the whole thing fit together? And therefore, the consultancy piece became intrinsically more important. And we were looking increasingly as how do you evolve ways of working. The other thing is our clients. You know, so I talked a little bit about McDonald's. McDonald's has been a, a core client of ours for a long time. Um, Sainsbury's has as well. BT. There's, there's a number of key clients and individuals that have said to us, we need some help. So could you help us in evolving this so you know the reason we put together our training and it really accelerated was market was mcdonald's wanted some training so we evolved it and created it and then sainsbury said that we've got an opportunity to build an academy for them so they enabled us to pitch for that and we got it right and we said look this you're our first client to do this with and they went that's okay we'll we'll trust you we've we've worked with you for some time we trust you to evolve and we'll grow it together so i think clients have enabled us to do that but then I think in the last couple of years, two or three years, as we have been growing oyster catchers, the market has changed so fundamentally. And as the big consultancies have become more focused on the understanding and helping businesses change as much mm. as they've needed to, it's been more important that marketing has worked more effectively. And the complexity around how do you really get marketing to change, I think, has meant there's been an opportunity for us to be able to create a, a consultancy that fits. I guess I did the, the, the classic consulting career journey if you don't become a big firm partner. Um, I did the other route, which is uh, going progressively smaller. So I did uh, five years uh, at a global consultancy. So I was at Deloitte for um, for that time. Had a range of great experiences there, multi-sector, um, some very, very diverse projects, programs I worked on there. Worked on the Oyster launch and did a stint working for the managing partner, which was, which was really insightful. So good times there. I then, just at the point when it was time to go out into industry and, and do something different, uh, had the opportunity to follow a colleague of mine, Dom Morehouse, who I know is another guest of yours from, from this series, who had recently started up uh, Morehouse Consulting. So found that proposition too intriguing to decline. Um, so followed Dom a little while after he'd started, ended up staying there for seven years and taking that organization on you know, a really interesting growth journey and really sort of honed my craft as a consultant during that period and, you know, understood what it took to go on that journey, build a business. And, you know, I got, I got pretty close to the inner workings of, of, of the whole enterprise uh, by the time I left. And then doing my own thing. So with myself and my co-founders, we started the business, yeah, as I say, going on for, going on for five years ago. Mostly, it's been a really positive story. So, yeah, I've been a consultant for um, for going on for eighteen years now. Still uh, looking looking to be doing a proper job that uh, <laughs> I always thought I'd be doing. But uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. Obviously, 
Dom has been a previous guest on on the podcast, as my listeners will, will know. He he built Morehouse, sold Morehouse. I think you were there for a little bit longer afterwards. What was it that led you and your co-founders to to set up Gate One? You know, you're obviously quite senior at Morehouse. What was it that made you decide to go out on your own at that time? Good question, and it was definitely a, a real fork in the road moment. Mm. So, a lot of it was definitely some unfinished business from Morehouse days. So there was something of a push factor in terms of the new era post Dom and, you know, other other founding directors stepping away, new leadership team, new ideas, different set of values as well, I'd say. And um, sort of directionally the business quite quickly going to new places that weren't necessarily in keeping with where we might have taken the organization. So that was a big part of it. The kind of strategy was clearly shifting and moving back towards, you know, what we perceived to be more building a, a mini big firm, mm. classic sort of leverage model, you know, pyramid structure, um, a different direction, you know, moving yeah. into a different space, you know, and, and away from the really high value end, top end, complex, you know, senior, difficult change. So I don't want to overplay that too, because the much bigger part of it was was clearly the pull factor of ourselves and our own motivations and our own ideas for for what we would do if, if we were to start our own consultancy. So the genesis of the idea might have been born out of you know some of those some of those quite difficult times actually. But mm. we were really clear that if if we did decide to go down this path and start again, that we were going to do that from a from a basis of investing positive energy and over the course of the you know seven years I was at Morehouse that was very predominantly a hugely positive experience and we learned a huge amount that we we felt we could reinvest but also do our own way and and not not do the journey better but definitely do it differently yeah um, do you remember how how those conversations first started because there's obviously yourself and your other three co-founders so four of you were you just all in the pub one day and said why don't we give this a go did one of you tap another on the shoulder, he tapped another on the shoulder. Do you remember how that sort of first came about? It's really hard to probably pinpoint a precise moment. You know, inevitably the kind of germs of these ideas start long before. Um, and we all left it at slightly different times and for slightly different reasons. Oh, so you'd, you'd actually left at this point. You'd gone and, I don't know, were you contracting in between or sort of doing another project role in between? Yeah, there was a, a bit of a bridging period. Mm. So... Um, so we all decided different things, but um, but personally, I spent a period of a few months doing some independent work whilst, you know, in the period after we'd all left, then there was some background work to try and get the business off the ground. And a lot of the sort of formative thinking about, like you said, why are we doing this? What are we going to stand for? You know, what's really important to us and, you know, early thinking into the brand and those kind of things and really were happening long before the business was was trading. So yeah. there was there was definitely quite a long genesis or you know embryonic state of the business before um, you know b- before we formally incorporated and and, and were sort of trading and, and working under that under under the new brand. Yeah, and and do you remember what those elements were that, like you said, you wanted to do it sort of not better but differently? You wanted to put your own mark on it. What were those? core elements that you and your co-founders were were talking about then and how have those influenced the firm as you've grown it massively and i think that goes right to the heart of I, you know i really look back on that period and 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 figuratively feel like we you know we we took the the blue pill over the red pill you know yeah. in that in that moment and and having taken that 
very deliberate decision and been so close not to taking that decision, mm. we absolutely wanted to have this no regrets mentality with everything that we did. Yeah. And you only can truly embody that ethos if every single day, you know, you're maintaining those standards of excellence, you're taking on the problems that people tell you are impossible you're holding each other to account in terms of your, you know, your, your professional standards, but your, your behaviors. In, and um, ultimately there's, you know, we've tried to retain this innate sense of journey in what we're doing. So yes, we wanted to be disruptive and yes, we wanted to do things a bit differently as much for our own motivation in that moment as because we thought there was a market need. I mean, yeah. nobody would tell you there's a market need for doing the incubator, for example, but that was something we really wanted to do for us um, as one example of, what we've done differently, but really in, t- in terms of kind of the, the core essence of the business, which is what you're asking about, it was really about this enshrining a sense of limitless possibility in anything that we do, be that with the, the client work that we take on, the people that we bring in, the businesses that we're going to spawn. We really wanted to have that no regrets mentality with all of it. And that has to come. You have to live and breathe that every day, I guess. Yeah. You can't just say that. And, uh, you know, and similarly, uh, anyone who comes on this journey with us for however long they stay, we really want to, them to share that same sense of journey and be the best they can be, meaning giving of themselves, you know, to the maximum ev- every day. And put simply, the, you know, the more you put in, the more you get out. And that's what we try to do all of the time. I'm interested because I, I think it potentially applies not just to people starting their own firm but even just making career moves you, you you mentioned that it almost so you know it so nearly didn't happen do you remember the decision point or the you know the decision process that led to you deciding to do it or led to you and your co-founders deciding to go for it so it was i think you know a large part of why we decided to go for it was the collective endeavor so all of us have been consultants for a, for a long time God knows. In my case, it was you know, it was time to do something a bit more, um, a bit a bit more grown up. Probably at that you know at that point, or maybe one day in the future, any one of us could have given ourselves hundreds of reasons why not to do it. You know, mm. starting again, having done you know a very significant long journey in, in Morehouse days was going to require huge amounts of grit, energy, resilience. We, we knew what we were getting ourselves in for, so you don't do that lightly. But had it been left to any single one of us, I highly doubt that we would have started our own consultancy organization. Or speaking for myself, I definitely wouldn't. And even though we all had very young families at the time, and you can kind of hear that voice in the back of your head screaming, "This is this is crazy," you know, you've you know, time to move onwards and upwards, not as some would say, go back back to the beginning. So it was really that commitment to each other. We were all in that stage at more or less the same time. We had similar reference points of what great looked like, similar reference points of how quickly those things can unravel. We'd been through the bumps in the road of of building a business. We felt we could, we were really well placed to anticipate those and be successful. And we, and we genuinely saw gaps in the market that were different too. So it was really, if I boil it, the answer to your question down to one thing, it was really that collective endeavor. And as soon as you're in something with others, you know, as with anything, personal training or you know any anything where you co-invest someone else into your into your goals you know you, you multiply the chance of success so I think that's probably my answer but what took much more resolve was sticking with it actually so how so well I think for all for all the reasons that 
we backed ourselves to to be successful and you know the points of our career we were at and our networks and and all of those aspects which which are really important it was still tremendously hard to get off go and the number of near misses we had the number of rejections we had you know for for all our sort of personal capital in consultancy that we delivered to a huge number of you know senior people that we backed ourselves to, to to give us more work it still takes something extra to get a client or a prospective staff member or associate to to come on board something that has literally no no track record as an entity yeah and we'd had so many close calls that we felt were real bankers and inevitably it tests your resolve and so there was definitely a, there's definitely a moment I vividly remember a few months into post that decision to really go for this when we we were kind of sat in a pub you know fairly gloomy faced to be to be fair and you know honestly looking at each other and going have we great that we've tried this but you know is is this going to work and w- were we unrealistic in our expectations and I think at that moment we gave ourselves you know one final push to really make it happen as a kind of final make or break and fortuitously or not fortuitously that that was really when things started to happen and once we got our first break and our first you know meaningful sale momentum built really quickly and I I think that point about perseverance is a key point and like you say you could have given up before you even started you couldn't given up in that pub and all gone off and you know done different things and actually that that perseverance obviously paid off and you know we're sitting here sort of five years later talking about the awards you won so it presumably is paying off you know which is great really great to hear i'm interested especially starting a new consulting firm consulting is a very competitive industry there's a lot of good quality firms out there you mentioned you know you had seen some gaps in the market what were those gaps that you were targeting to to make gate one different i mean that could be market service gaps or client side might be you saw a different model for doing something internally what what were those key gaps that you saw for gate one i think you touched on some of the fundamental points because i'd be lying if i said we gate one have have this you know unique service line totally nailed that no one's ever discovered you know that's simply not the case and where some companies are genuinely is but we think our industry is still fundamentally underserved you know clients who purchase consultancy are still fundamentally underserved. There's some phenomenal work that that happens in, you know, in, in, in all sorts of sectors, but the level of trust, skill, satisfaction is is way short of what it could be, given the expertise and kudos of practitioners in our in our space. So really we we felt and having seen what was successful previously, bringing the way we consulted with our clients was was the real gap in a way that was consciously different from particularly the you know the big four and an easy target right but um all having had personal experience of those kind of environments and seeing the agenda of one's clients inevitably coming into conflict with the agenda of those big firms and in such a way that any pretense of being an independent advisor is is impossible that's the starting point for what clients really need and really value, especially as capability for changing and transforming organizations is is building all of the time, you know, in, in every business everywhere, right? So 
not only do we have to raise our game continually, but what's really valuable is where clients can come in and be that catalytic effect, you know, working in, we call it the ripple effect is kind of our internal um, language for that, but small teams making a concerted difference in, in such a way that the ripples of what they're doing is felt much broadly across the organization. It's never about us, but it is about the change that we start, you know, and the snowballs that we, that we start, you know, rolling. And that kind of, that kind of concept embodies a lot of things, but the energy, the passion, the cultural sensitivity with which we work. And, you know, just fundamentally it's that personal touch and emotional intelligence. So if you add in one package, which we seek to do with each person who works in our business, never mind collectively, really high skill levels as a consultant, deep expertise in, you know, whatever the project or sector context is, and just phenomenal EQ and an empathy who understands the full life cycle of transformation. And then you get those people working together in teams. That's fundamentally the proposition. And if you're true to where that bar is with everybody you try to bring into your team and the, the character fits and the cultural fit and the values fit with those individuals, that's, I think, what the ultimate USP is of what we're trying to do. And of course, we need to have a very specific viewpoint on what's happening in, in lots of different spaces. And we need to be very on trend with enhancing and, and utilizing different technologies and those kind of things. However, the fundamental USP for us always has been and always will be that the, the package that you you get in every individual who's, who's part of the team. And that's what's most powerful. And that's the feedback that we get from from our clients repeatedly. It'd be great to actually find out for those who who maybe don't know you so well or haven't come across CF before, actually, what was the origin story? How did you get started and what was it that led you to launch the business? The origin story, it, it's not re- it doesn't stem from any kind of master plan. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago what I was going to do, I, I was going to work in the public sector. I was going to work for in-house, for health, and that's what I thoroughly expected my career to be and to look like and with the 2010 government they did a massive reform of the NHS and I worked at the time for an organization called NHS London which was the strategic health authority for the NHS in London and I loved my job and was passionate committed thoroughly proud of what I did and that organization in the, this set of reforms got ab- abolished and I had to think about what I was going to do and I was relatively young for the position that I found myself at at that point in my career and the job landscape was very challenging in the NHS at my level of seniority it was a big contraction and other people had more experience than I did with tenure, uh, so to speak. And I also had some real constraints on my life with young children and willingness to relocate. At that time, I, w- I was a you know a single mother with two boys. So the thought process was a bit like, well, what am I going to do? And through uh, the, the organization I worked with got abolished in 2013. So it was quite a drawn out ending <laughs> to my career in the NHS. So, so did you know 
how long did you know that you were going to be made redundant from that role? Was it was it that three years or? No, it was probably it was a couple of years that I knew that I was going to get made redundant. I guess I still thought I was going to have something else. So even though the something else wasn't defined, I just expected that a the right job would come around for me within the NHS system. And so I would say probably only in the final six months did it really begin to crystallize for me that that wasn't necessarily going to be the case and I had to think about other options. And that's where founding CF came into it. So other management consultancy companies were interested in hiring me and that caused a kind of chain of thinking about did I really want to do that or would I actually like to set up my own one and Ruth was had been clear for some time that she was no this was this decision around this set of reforms were that was therefore the point at which it was the right decision to move on and if I'm honest, I was drunk one night in a bar with her and we decided we were going to take this leap of faith, which for me felt like it was a big risk being used to working in the public sector to saying I'm going to create a startup with two young kids, hence the need for alcohol. But nonetheless, <laughs> that is what I did. <laughs> that is, uh, so I... I'm running my own business now and I've had a number of guests who have, have founded their own businesses like yourselves. I, I'm always fascinated on what makes people make that move because I, I know so many people and speak to so many people who who choose not to or decide they, for whatever reason, they can't. So I, I really want to dive into that. But just beforehand, because again, I appreciate you mentioned Ruth there, who you co-founded the business with. How did you two know each other? Had you had you worked together at NHS London? Was it a, a friends? H- how did that conversation even start for you to say yes in the pub that night? So she was the chief executive of NHS London and I was on the board as one of the director team working for her. But I've worked with her off and on since I think it was about 2003 that I first met her. So we worked together in the Department of Health off and on in different roles and then for must have been about seven years might be getting my years quite a little bit wrong but anyway we worked together I worked for her um so that's how I I know her and um we make a good team I like working with her she likes working with me so and you mentioned you'd spent your career up until that point in in the public sector am I right Ruth was was a similar background had she got a she been in consulting before or was she public sector sort of for her whole career as well? The NHS likes to have reforms. So it, it, she had a temporary period <laughs> out of it. I think the, the reforms we're talking about, maybe it was it's either number eight, nine, ten in her career, something like that. So she, she had worked for a small period of time as a consultant, but a freelance consultant, as opposed to uh, what we embarked on doing in setting up CF. But otherwise, public sector through and through over 30 years so long-standing career in the NHS wow and so the reason I ask is because I'm really keen to find out about the early days of CF because I think 
and, and I'm sure I'll be offending someone here, so I apologize to whoever that is. But if I think about a lot of my guests, they have all, who have started their own firms, it's worth saying, they have come from a consulting background. So they have been in a, a big four or a boutique firm, and at some point they've decided they'd go out on their own. So they they come with a, a an understanding of, of what it's like to be a consultant and B, almost a, a blueprint for how to do that. It sounds like while I'm sure you'd worked with consultants and had a, had a decent idea of what they did as a, as a client, you, you didn't have mad. either of those. And, and <laughs> I guess I'm really interested almost how in those early days, almost what you asked yourselves in the pub to say, yes, let's do it. And then how did you build those skills so quickly to, to make the business a success? Because like you said, you know, if you're a single mother, you've got two kids you don't have, well, I, I don't know, but you don't have the luxury of, you know, years to figure this out. You've got to make a successful business. And I'm sure that was, you know, weighing heavily on your mind. So what were those those key questions you two asked each other? And then what were those early steps you, you took to really set the business up for success? Well, partly, I mean, it goes back to why not work for one of these other bigger companies as opposed to setting something on our own. And if I'm honest, I couldn't get excited about it. And partly I couldn't get excited about it because of the way they're structured, because of the constraints on the offer. Ruth was used to being a chief executive. I was used to being a board member. Mm. And within that, there was a lot of autonomy to operate with, even within the public sector in terms of decision-making and choices. And, and so even at very senior levels and in some of the bigger companies I don't think it's very hard to influence and I think that what I believed in and what we've tried to do is something that's different that's differentiating and it is bringing our kind of value space to what we've tried to do but also recognizing the skills and capabilities that we have brought to our clients because of the depth of experience we have in the sector. And I, I, did a, the, I did the strategy role at NHS London. So a lot of what I would call core consulting skill set were needed to be effective in that role. Mm -hmm. And I was a client to a number of different consulting companies. Now, for sure, you, uh, you know, I didn't really know what I was letting myself into incompleteness, but I did have sufficient confidence to say, well, I don't want to do that. And I do think we could offer something different and distinctive that the market needs. So it was a little bit like a leap of faith and a judgment as much about what I didn't want to do as what I did. And I think that it's a, a really powerful point you make because I think a lot of people don't necessarily take that stock and say what is it I want to do and and, and almost what don't I so you know take that decision point you you did once you'd made that jump you know you two had had committed to this you'd you'd got to work you decided on the name the, the proposition almost what were those first and and if this is too far back stop me what were those first three, six, 12 months like? What, what were the things that when you started, almost you went in either thinking they'd be really easy and they were really difficult or or almost the other way around? What were those things that really really stuck with you that you remember from, from setting up in the early days? 
I learned that it was really difficult to open a bank account. (laughs) 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 Like stuck in the dark age type difficult. (laughs) You physically had to turn up oneself. And (laughs) we we got a credit limit for about 500 quid, which, you know, (laughs) doesn't get you that many train fares, does it? (laughs) So it was some of the small stuff and we were joking, but I do, I mean, I vividly remember what a pain I thought it was open, trying to open bank accounts and credit cards and things that you take for granted, e- even in one's you know, personal life and you for sure take for granted in a professional context. Th- those things were remarkably difficult. And I think you don't expect them at all. You don't anticipate that's going to happen. But we were relatively quick at using the relationships that we have and the credibility we had to 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 win work and to provide the kind of support that we wanted to for for people so that obviously was a key focus in our first 3 to 6 months doing that but because of the relationships we held because we had this very deep understanding of the market given where we'd come from um, I think we were more successful more quickly on that front than I ever expected and the things that we found much harder were some of the basics about putting a business together which I had no experience of to kind of draw (laughs) to draw on. What were those basics because I've heard a lot of people talk about the challenges of selling which, which obviously it sounds like because of your network and your reputations wasn't your challenge. So so what were those basics? Yeah, obviously, the, the bank accounts and the little things, but I imagine there were some, some more structural pieces as well. So what were some of those basics that you really had to work hard to, to put in place in those early days? So I wouldn't say it was the first, by the way, I don't want it to make it sound like it's easy to do selling because it, to- it totally isn't. Uh, so I only, I only <laughs> say that because I've... Three. I have talked to a number of guests about it over the last few shows. So it was not that it's exactly like it's not that it's easy, but sorry, I cut you off. The first three were easy. What happened after that? So I was just saying it was, <laughs> selling wasn't easy, but the, the I think some of the, the things that were, were most tricky, I don't know that I could say they, you know, they were definitely things that happened in the first three to six months, but obviously as we were growing and we were working out what we wanted to be, we needed to hire people. And um, while you can convince yourself to take this kind of crazy leap of faith that after a few margaritas, you might convince yourself it's a good idea, getting other people to think this was a secure job and with the kind of capability and talent that we needed to be a success, it's actually, I think, very hard in the early days. Now we have an analyst program, we have an annual intake into that. We get the most fabulous talent applying for that program you know and more talented people than we can can take to come in in our kind of September intake but at the beginning it's very hard to get people to take a leap of faith just because you have to come and work as part of CF because there's no track record for them to be confident in people have their own commitments how did you do that other than taking them to the pub for margaritas which might have been the strategy I don't know how did you go about getting those first few few hires you know and like you say that the ones that are almost the hardest to win but almost the most critical to your your long-term success 
go on a big kind of, I mean, by putting a lot of time at it. I mean, I would still say now we put a lot of time at the people aspects of the business, but personally engaging with people through a process and talking to them about their concerns and taking time over it. And then you do get people who it is the right point in their life. They want to do something different. We're a mission driven organization. And I think we attract talent now and did then who have a commitment and feel excited about that mission. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing that I think hooked and has hooked people to saying, yes, we want to be part of CF. I want to come back to the the entrepreneurial side because I, I think there's going to be a fascinating insight around how you do employ people but cultivate that entrepreneurial mindset because like you say, there it's a spectrum but there is a, a potential dichotomy there. I want to turn back to yourself because my understanding is actually you were in a very similar place when you went out to start one of your startups. Mm. Now, for my listeners' benefit, you started three businesses, I believe, prior to starting Elixir. You know, what was going through your mind? Because I'm sure there's some listeners who may be in that same position. You know, they're almost a partner. They've almost climbed to the top of the mountain as Mm. they see it. But they've got that idea. Mm. What was that for you? How how was that for well, you? It is interesting. You know, I I um I've always wanted to build a business because I see it as a I don't know it's just something that I've always had the desire to do, and I was always looking for that invention that I could build my business around. You know, I said I wasn't an inventor, um. So I guess I experimented along the way. But I want to just put some say something before I, I I explain the three businesses I started. I used consulting because for me. The most entrepreneurial thing you can do in corporate life is consulting. Being a partner in a consulting firm is the most entrepreneurial position in corporate life because you are accountable for your own revenue and your own costs and you have to show a profit. Yeah. And it's very real. It's very visceral. It becomes less and less so the bigger the consultancy because, you know, in a KPMG or an Accenture or a PwC or whatever, you know, the numbers are so diluted if one partner's not doing so well, it's not really noticed. But in smaller partnerships, you certainly own the issue. If you're not if you're not delivering value and you're not being paid, you don't make any money. It's as simple as that, right? And um, so that is the most entrepreneurial thing. So I've always used consulting as the way to sort of satisfy that itch, if you like, that I wanted to have that accountability. But ultimately, I wanted to build something of of substance outside of necessarily consulting. That was my initial um, ambition. So my first attempt at this was uh, around 2000 and. I don't know if you if you old enough, Nick, to remember, but um, <laughs> two thousand was the internet bubble, right? I, I, I believe it was. I believe it. I believe it was. <laughs> yeah, it's when everyone thought the high street was dead, and there'd be no shops on the high street. Everyone would buy everything. So, sort internet. of like where we are now. <laughs> Quiet with Bitcoin and a few other things. Yeah, um, every currency is about to die, right? Um, the same thing happened in two thousand, and we had this huge momentum around yeah. um, internet businesses, a lot of funding. And I thought I was a senior manager at the time at KPMG in London here. And, um, you know, like anybody, it's a big decision then at that point in your career. You've, you've invested a lot in building yourself to that point. I thought I was on partner track. It depends who you speak to. So I was. Uh, that was my ambition while I was in consulting. And it, rightly so, it should be ambition. But I thought I'd just have to give this a go. I've always wanted to do this. So I, I started a company with six other guys. I was 30 at the time. My son was six months old. I just bought a house in Surrey for 140K, I think. And I raised the mortgage to 240000 because you could do that back then, even though the equity wasn't in the house. We all put 100000 in the middle of the table. and um, 100000 each. Yeah, six yeah. of us, 100000 each. 
and uh, we resigned and uh, went after it for 12 months. And my wife thought I was mad, <laughs> but I said to her, I just have, this is an itch I've got to scratch. I've got to have a go at this. Um, but, you know, it is interesting because I encourage anybody to have a go like you, you've had a go. But there is something, there needs to be a bit of realism in it too. You know, the, the idea we had wasn't a bad idea, but it wasn't a brilliant one. It's not the reason the business didn't succeed. The business did not succeed and failed, and I lost all my money. I lie. We sold out, I think I got five grand back. So for 100,000 down, I got five grand back, which is <laughs> it's not better, one of, better than nothing, I guess. Well, not one of my best investments. No. <laughs> Let's say. But but still, you know, it's one of those, those things that is a massive learning experience because I learned a lot out of that. I learned... A, the first thing and probably the most valuable lesson is consensus is no way to run a business. I mean, we all live in a, a democracy and we, we like to feel we all have a voice. But actually in business, someone has to make a call. It's a bit like if you've played sport in teams, you listen to everyone. But as a captain of a team, you've got to call the play. You know, you can't have everybody deciding how to play. Yeah. You know, someone has to make the call. And the problem we had in that business, if I'm honest, was that we all had equal stakes and we all had one board seat. And therefore, we found the lowest common denominator as opposed to the best answer. The lowest common denominator is the is satisficing, right? It's it's just not the best answer. So I vowed never to do that again. So what it cost me, that MBA cost me hundred thousand pounds. <laughs> um, but it was a good lesson. Yeah. You know, you know, I took that forward and and you know, I accept that if I'm in a hierarchy or if I'm setting up a hierarchy, it needs to be this way because someone has to make the call. And it's a great lesson, and I'll take it with me. There are lots of other lessons in there, but that was, I think, the most material one that came out of that for me. I'm really interested now that you are where you are with Elixir. Mm. How do you balance that? Like you say, you, your view is you always need one person to make the call. How, mm. how do you balance that with sort of the other end of the spectrum? I feel our conversation will be all about spectrums. You know, mm. one end you've got, like you say, six people around the table everyone has to be satisfied and you get a lowest common denominator. Mm. The other end, some might say you get a, an autocracy. Mm. How do you balance that so that, like you say, you have that definitive view, mm. but others are still able to input and provide that insight so that it doesn't just become that one person's view? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's tricky, right? I mean, I think I use metaphors a lot, right? And I use sporting analogies because I love my sport. But yeah. um, I think there's a lot we can learn from sport as uh, well, well, so well, I agree. Absolutely, and that's why I encourage everyone to play team sports because I think I can't win a rugby match on my own, but I do accept that someone has to be the captain in the on the field. And and you get good captains and you get bad captains, right? Yeah. Good coaches and bad coaches. And the good ones are the ones that listen, the ones that understand, the ones that genuinely try to find the best answer. It really comes down to the leadership at the end of the day. If you're the type of leader that wants to be an autocrat and wants, you, wants to have the power of making decisions and believes that your decisions are always the best ones, then you make a very poor leader in, the, in an environment where you're expecting people to present their views and you're trying to find and make genuinely the best decision. You know, I think, unfortunately, the way corporate life is often structured is that it's not structured in such a way that people genuinely get a, a transparent view of the truth. Um, hence, they hire consultants. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and so what ends up happening is that you get suboptimal decision making. I, I think yeah. what I've tried to build in Elixir, anyway, certainly as the outcome of that lesson, if you if you like, in this business, is it's a true partnership. You know, we all partners. We all share in the profit of the firm. We have our partners meetings. We have full and frank conversations. But it's Chatham House rules, right? So yeah. anybody can have an opinion in the room, but when we decide, we walk out with one voice. And that means if you disagree. You bet. You get your chance to have your say, and if you can't convince, then 
we walk out with a view that's different to yours and you have that view too. But if you do that fairly and you do that pragmatically and you don't do that with ego and, and ulterior motive and yeah, all the, the negative emotions that can go with being a, a dictator, if you like, yeah. then, then I think you get the best out of people because we've all played sport with good captains and that's what they do, right? They, they find a way when they need to, they're tough but they find a way to get the best decision and, and make people feel like it's they're participating in it. And But at the end of the day, when the chips are down, someone has to say, right, we're going that way, you yeah. know, and that's just the truth of the matter. So it's almost like a benign dictatorship, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, to, you know, as a rugby and sports fan as well, you know, you yeah. can you can see where it, the England rugby team's gone through yeah. changes along those sort of lines. Yeah. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll win the Six Nations, but this, I think, will yeah. come out just after, so we'll, we'll wait and see. Well, you, you, it's interesting just to, on that point. I mean, you take, I'm a South African, so I find this hard to say, but you look at the best <laughs> rugby team in the world, right? New Zealand, right? And what does Richie McCaw do when he was captain? He sweeps the change rooms out at the end of the day. You know, I mean, great leader. No one would ever question his leadership on the rugby field, but he's humble enough in the environment of being in the team to be one of the team. And I think that's actually the essence of it. There's a reason that team is so good that don't have as many registered rugby players as England or South Africa yeah. or Australia, and yet they're consistently the best team in the world. And there's a reason, because they know how to get the best out of a team, but with also having clear leadership, clear direction, and the ability to make decisions, you know. So, Definitely. Yeah. And uh, I think that point, like you say, that not having an ego, being mm. one of the team, being there, like you say, being humble enough to get stuck in when you need to, yeah. but being able to, I guess, transition between the decision-making down to sweeping the floors yeah. is obviously a key factor for them and you know, sounds like it is for you here. Yeah. So, so I want to bring us apologies. I interrupted. You were telling us the lessons from your yes, startup. Yes, so sorry so, me. I'm jumping around. No, yeah. no. It's, uh, as I said, yeah. we would. Um, yeah. So please. Sure. So yeah, so that was a failure after 12 months. And again, I packed it in, got five grand back after a few years. I basically ran out of money. So I had to work, go cap in hand back to the city, started working at IBM. Spent uh, four, four and a half years in IBM. While I was there, I thought, let me go back to basics. I thought, I, I haven't, I'm not finished with this entrepreneurial thing. So I thought I'd go back to basics. And the fundamentals of business is buy low, sell high. So I thought, well, where can I buy low and where can I sell high? And being from Africa, I thought I can buy low in Africa and sell high in Europe slash Western world. And so I thought I'd use the internet to sell African art on uh, the European slash Western world stage. So I started this business up. I had my father-in-law helping me down in South Africa, source the art, and I was sort of selling it out here on the internet. But, um, you know, that unfortunately, that market is very narrow, very small. It's It got to turning over a little bit of business, but I did this in the side, in the evenings. Yeah. I didn't actually resign, so I couldn't afford to, so I did it on the side. But it was only ever going to be a lifestyle business. It was never going to be something that could really scale because the market just genuinely isn't big enough. At least at that time, it wasn't. And and I'm not a person who loved African art per se. I mean, I'd love art, but not in the way that I wanted to make my life, if yeah. you know what I mean. So it was never going to be something that would be a passion business either. So I kind of let that one dwindle, at least die on the vine, if you like. Then I, I went across to Accenture. And while I was in Accenture, I spent a lot of time on aircraft because I was flying out to the States a lot, doing a lot of work out in the US. And that six-hour flight transatlantic, I, I tried to use productively. So I then, I've always been interested in technology and I got my hands on a keyboard and decided to code up a trading system. And I wrote a trading system, put 50,000 of my own money into it, I think at the time, and traded it up to half a million. And I was just about to kind of pull the trigger on, let's get third-party money in and let's start really use, building a hedge fund. When that Sorry, when you say traded up, you were you were investing your half a million in 
yeah, I stocks and shares. Sorry, yeah. your fifty thousand into stocks and shares. Yes, that's correct. So, okay. this, uh, systems trading. So, it essentially, was algorithmic trading. So, uh, so it wasn't that yours was a system a trader would use. Your system helped you trade. To it just get... it traded automatic trading. So, in essence, I buy and sell signals that were automatically traded in the marketplace, and it was based on. Uh, back testing and and yeah. I mean if you know much about this is it was a momentum based system right okay and I did all the back testing and it looked like it showed forty percent returns over the last twenty years blah 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 so I started trading my own money with it and got fifty thousand to half a million in about nine months or so wow and I thought um, this looks like a winner so let me see if I can try raise some third party money and make this into a, into a business. And literally two months later, my half a million was down to zero. <laughs> so, you know, another life's lesson in that. So the lesson out of that for me was um, you've got to do what you're good at. Mm. You know, yes, I can code. Yes, I can understand the market uh, forces. But actually, when you're trading with technology, you're not thinking market forces. You only It's technical trading. So it's really trading price action, which doesn't actually take into account any of the market fundamentals at all. So maybe I should stick to what I was good at. So... After spending five years in Accenture and having those three failures, I suddenly realized I've been with KPMG, IBM, and Accenture now, and great brands, great businesses, and I would never knock those businesses. They are simply stellar businesses. But still, I think they've lost the spirit of consulting, the the ethos of advisory-type business. And I thought, well, this is something I can recreate. This is something I think I can build. I know this industry really well. I've done it. In, on and off in amongst my other ventures for quite some time. So why don't I build a business that looks and feels like I think consulting should be, yeah. hence Q Elixir. So, you know, we're now nine years in and here we are. <laughs> I wanted to kick off with the really the start of the Q5 journey. I'm always interested in firms with co-founders and the story behind how all the co-founders met, how they got going, what who who spoke to who, who who decided there'd be four, not five, not three. And I just wanted to find out really how how you started Q5. It's a it's a go it's, Ollie, you I'll go, go for it. I'll go. You go first. <laughs> I'm being permitted to speak. Um, so I think I think it's a really it's a really good question. And actually this question is is relevant to any small business, um, whether it's a consulting firm or whether it's a biscuit manufacturer. We're a human capital business, you know, whether you're a law firm or accounting firm. When you're experienced, and certainly Sharon and I had been working for probably about 13, 14 years at a time where we thought it would be great to go and take what we do for a living out to market in a new Mm. brand, Um, you get an itch, don't you? We we, we got to our our mid-30s, and I think there are a couple of things going on. Firstly, the firms that we had been working in up to that point didn't major in organisation design and development. It was always a peripheral thing for them, and uh, yet it was the work we loved and the work we were most Mm -hmm. passionate about. Mm -hmm. And we were thinking, well, actually, maybe if we were to create a firm that focused in the organization space, that we could have great fun creating a brand from scratch and taking it to market and doing the work we're most passionate about. And and I certainly, from Sharon and my perspective, we'd known each other a long time. We hadn't actually worked together, but we'd known each other a long time. I I think we had a respect for, I certainly respected you. I hope God respected me. (laughs) Definitely. Um, and so we wouldn't had, be here if I didn't. <laughs> so we had long conversations over bottles of wine, yes. and um, and uh, uh, you know it took about a year of planning, yes. a year of 
yes. of, of, of talking yeah. through what we want and, to do. And I think when you're when you begin to think about setting up a business, the only right time to do it is when you are personally ready to to found yeah. the business. Um, you know, we set up Q5 in 2009, which was in the last recession, and genuinely, a, a number of people who we started to talk to about it. Our wives and husbands, our you know, advisors said, why are you doing it now? And for me, it was a really obvious answer. It was like, because I'm ready. I'm ready now personally, because the commitment that you need to give to founding and establishing a business is, is all consuming. And so you just have to kind of look you know, deep, deep inside. You have to look at the people that you've chosen to do it with and say, we're ready, we're ready to go. And actually, whatever else is going on around you doesn't really matter at that stage. You've got to have that belief that you've got the experience, the impact and the, the knowledge to do what you need to do. Mm. No, I agree. And, and I want to just come back to the point you two knew it. You said you'd known each other a long time. My understanding is you were both at Accenture for a sort of period of time. Was it that you had become friends there? And then I know you both went off and did other things that would be interesting to explore. But how did you two decide that you would come together to have these conversations about a business? So, so where, it, it, you know, it's kind of like unraveling a ball of string. How do you actually track back to, to the, you know, the origination of the conversation? And I, and I, you know, I think in reality, it was probably Ollie that actually picked up the phone. Um, I was freelancing at the time. I had three small mm. children. Um, I had started to play with some of my own business ideas. Um, Ollie was in a smaller consultancy at the time, you know, you know, doing very well and growing that business. But you know, clearly he had an itch, a personal itch as well. And and personal he itch. personal <laughs> itch. You can take that. Yeah, <laughs> and he picked up the phone and said, um, can we have a can we have a glass of wine? I've got yeah. an I've got an idea I want to talk to you about. And then it grew from there. So I'll yeah. let you then, you know. So what made you pick up the phone? Um, so what made me pick up the phone to you at the time was um, it's it's like building a pop band, you know, it's like building a band, a manufactured band. Um, Sharon is, uh, well, you can see here, a, a very charismatic, high energy uh, <laughs> a driver. And what we did, so your, your first question was, how did you decide whether to have four or five or two people? Right at the very beginning, we wanted to go into organization design and development, and we wanted to be able to be a ready-made team. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we wanted a team where we had someone that was very arithmetical. We wanted someone that knew finance functions. We wanted someone that knew HR functions. and we need so, so we were able to work as a ready-made team on a particular client. So we had different personality types. There were three three blokes, yep. uh, two women. So it was always very diverse, actually. And, and our, our diversity to this day, we have a lot of people in the business now, and fifty five percent of our firm is made up by mm. by women. So it's always been quite a diverse business. And the different personality types to begin with, we had drivers, we had expressives, we had so we, so we went for five. And uh, it was the right number. Yes. But, I mean, Sharon is is uh, a force of nature. <laughs> and I saw someone that I knew would be able to go out, knew no fear, would be, had a good network and had worked both within a client organization and as a consultant. So that was really the melange that we went and, through. And, and so why did I sort of take the call? I'd been freelancing for, for a couple of years, having left an in-house an in role. And I was actually a bit lonely and a bit bored actually working on my own. I'm, I, that's not my kind of modus mm. operandi. I'm much better in a team. And having known Ollie from Accenture, so having, you know, at that point known him for 10 years, I knew that it would be a lot of fun um, and that, you know, we, we, would, uh, we would go places. I want to come back, actually, Ollie, to your point around the manufactured pop band approach. I, I, 
I like the metaphor. Do you remember what specific questions you asked yourself or what business model or business plan you were trying to populate to get to those answers? How did you how did you decide you needed one HR person, one finance person, one person who's good with maths, one person who's good with people, let's say? Uh, so it was a really simple thing. If you're going to create a team-led and team-run business, you need people with different attributes. So we didn't want to go for a whole group of homogenous people. We wanted people that brought different skill sets. And we've always had a philosophy right from the first day that you need to soar with your strengths. Now, mm. I know from our mm. experience of having worked in some of the bigger firms before, there was always a sense that in order to be promoted from one level to the next, you had to demonstrate you could do volumetric modeling and then you needed to be able to build, mm. you know, databases and things and if you couldn't get that tick in the box we wouldn't promote you any further whereas you've got people with myriad skill sets and attributes and actually if you're an extraordinarily brilliant facilitator why force them to become a, a demon excel modeler if they're brilliant at facilitating mm. uh, so right from the outset we wanted to demonstrate that you could have a team with different attributes and different skill sets and they were all, all of all equal value um, so, mm. so that's what we went to from the competency point of view. And was this the two of you? You mentioned we. So you'd had your original drink. We, and then... So we went. We we talked to quite a few people. In fact, though, you know, there are certainly one one of the people that you've interviewed on another <laughs> podcast is another person that we spoke to. Um, and uh, so this this isn't something that we just did overnight. This was a. Mm. Uh, this did genuinely take about twelve months mm. worth of working out who we wanted to go into business with. And the other thing, it's worth it's worth saying that the, the other thing that was driving us, uh, and, and in terms of uh, attracting the, the right type of personality into the business, was the fact that when you do what we do for a living, by setting up your own business and learning about what it takes to brand mm. it, mm. and learning about what it takes to manage a PL and discovering what a debt a day is, and needing to balance the books. These are things that we advise our clients on on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're in a big four firm, you, you will often be asked those questions by your clients, yet you've never lived it viscerally. So, you know, going back to the very beginning, we were at a point where we were looking for people who wanted to experience that from scratch. So, you know, yeah, it's really I, key. I think another... There comes a point as well where you have to say, this now feels right. So there's a there's a big bit of gut, gut yeah. instinct in that as well. So you can do all the planning and you can spend uh, you know, a lot of time saying, you know, what's the scenario and what will happen if. But I think eventually, you know, we got to a stage where we had five people around the table and we said, Are we are we gonna do this? Are we gonna resign from our jobs? Because you know, we were all working apart from Carla and we're going to now do this. You know, we're going to stop the planning and we're going to kind of get into action. So so there's a bit, there's lots of data and lots of kind of, you know, conversation. But then there's a gut moment that says it feels right. And I won't labour it too much, but the, your approach to finding your co-founders, I think, is a really interesting one. And I'm just thinking for others who, like you, maybe sort of when you started, were mid-30s, want to do something similar. Do you remember why it was that you decided that, so Chris and Daryl, forgive me. Carla currently, I believe and Carla. Only, so Carla, Carla was the the, um, the, the, the fifth, fifth person, yeah, the fifth Beetle. The fifth Beetle. She, <laughs> she, she, she's Beetle. interesting. And so these are, these these questions are really relevant, actually, because Carla Carla lasted for about a year or so, fourteen months, fourteen, yeah, 14 months. months, and she was terrific and and brilliant, and mm. actually works with us now, ten years on, as an associate of the business. But again, 
at the time, it was, inc- I can't stress enough how brutal it was. Mm. This We mm. were talking about the beginning of 2009. As Sharon said, the expression used, the pit of the recession, mm. it was absolutely the pit of the recession. And I think at the time, it was such hard work that we got to our first year. I think as a business, we build about £20,000 in the first six months. So it was a a business where it was all or nothing for certainly four of us. Mm. And the fifth person happened to be married to a fantastic chap who worked in a bank. And it was kind of, this is is, is all-consuming. This is absolutely Mm. all-consuming. I've got three kids to look after. I'm not sure I can give it what you are giving, Sharon, and what you're giving, Chris. So that that was, you know, finding the right people. It was who was hungry enough to want to do it, who was uh, slightly mad yeah. enough to want to yeah. do it, yeah. Um, yeah. who uh, shared that passion for creating a brand from scratch, and who was prepared to risk everything to do it. And and I again, it's really and I important. would add, I would want to add one one other really important characteristic: um, who was loyal. Yeah. loyalty and and you know obviously you 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 learn loyal, you know you learn how loyal people are over time but i think we knew that was a really strong value in all of the, the five of us because we had to be committed to this and it was a big thing for carla at the at 14 months to say i'm not going to do this anymore but she was loyal to q5 and to us and didn't kind of want to mess anybody around and so she she made a really hard decision and i remember it being a hard decision yes yeah, so it was a massive decision yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's it, good to hear that it's worked out very well for all of you and she's you know still working with you now i'm always interested in the ones that got away or the ones that you you ummed and ahed around you know someone who might have been your sixth beetle but you ultimately decided no do you remember any of the questions that either you asked yourselves that led to that was there anyone firstly i guess and if so do you remember any of the questions that led you to say no or led you to decide it wasn't quite right but because it was always it was actually, the right mix. It's a really good question. It's a good question. It's a really I think it's a, it's a really good question. I, there's a sort of mutuality mm, to it in yeah. the sense that the when we were talking to people, the people that weren't found as a Q5, and, and many of them have gone on to amazing things, mm. it was whether they were prepared to take the degree of risk that, you know, if you leave a well-paid job and we were mm. all... You know, we were all mm. pretty experienced. None of us took severance packages. We all walked away from mm. pretty decent jobs to do this. It was a hell of a punt. And I certainly speaking about two or three of the other people that we, we spoke to at the time, it was, this is almost too much to comprehend. I think we're better off doing this option here because it de-risks mm. it. It's already set up, for instance, and I can go and set up a new industry sector, for instance, or this thing here, they've been going for five years already. I think we can probably go. So it was, it was a sort of like, it was a mutual and a, a very good, upbeat, mm. uplifting experience mm. going through that. But the people mm. who ended up within the business, that's not, it actually, I've got to say, one of the other difficulties, I think, when you set up a business is, is going into business with mates, with friends. Yes. And I mean, Sharon and I have known each other since 1995, but we were professional acquaintances and actually, if it had all gone pear-shaped mm. and we couldn't stand the sight of each other after the first year, it wouldn't have been uh, the end of the world. It doesn't reach into the world. Yeah. You know, it, mm. it wouldn't have destroyed mm. our families. Well, there is one of the five. I mean, there's, there's Jeff Darrell, who you've mentioned already. I, I've known him since I was 18. So that that was a hell of a big gamble to go into, mm. into business with a very, very good friend that you've known almost since childhood. It's not something that you would ordinarily recommend other people to do, but it has worked out. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. 
If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.